As you're listening to the following music selections, adjust the volume, bass, and treble controls to suit your taste. Welcome to Android's Dungeon on CFRU 93.3 FM, broadcasting normally out of the University of Guelph, Guelph, Ontario campus. This is not the University of Guelph, but it is, sort of. Android's Dungeon is a show about books, movies, music, whatever happened was we walked into our specific areas where we record in peace and solitude. If Superman was to record a show, he would have his dope lair in, is it Antarctica or somewhere the North Pole. Fortress of Solitude. His Fortress of Solitude. I imagine he's probably got a great setup. The Justice League probably hooked him up. Or it's just Henry Cavill with his limitless amount of time and money to build incredible setups for Warhammer and gaming. Because All the money he made from farming. From farming? Yeah, being Superman. I don't get it. Well, he's raised by a couple of farmers, right? Oh, I see. Yeah, I, I suppose. Maybe he, his family, uh, Mond uh, Pa Kent, had a nice farm that was profitable. I'm sure they had access to all the markets, market economies, that were able to facilitate him to build uh, computers with, let's say, uh, NVIDIA 4090s and the latest chips. I'm not familiar with the Intel uh, processors because the numbers are incomprehensible gibberish to me. So I'll just assume he's got a... He's got uh, a 7090X3D AMD chip, the, yep. the latest and greatest. That Vcash is something else not to be trifled with. Ninth gen. Is that what we're at? Ninth gen? Or did you just pluck that number? Oh, yeah. I think there's 10th gen now. Either way, Superman. He's probably got a great setup. I'm Jack, and I'm joined by the lovely Joel, who is basking in the afterglow of a potential... It, we'll say 99.999% chance of career change. Not even a career change. I, I don't know if that's the correct way to describe it. Career move. I think that's mm. better. Yeah. It, unlimited wealth and prosperity coming my way. Obviously. He's going to be the Superman, in a sense. <laughs> I think that's what we're talking to here. Yeah. What have you been playing, Joel? Well, you know. No, I don't. That's why I asked, all right? Big old civilization-type game. You're going to get right into uh, it. Clash of Cultures. But I'll give you a little um, Bloodborne update, because I have managed to get on a little bit. Good. Um, decided in the end to leave Lightning Dog alone and go slash up Bone Baby. Who's not really a baby at all. I think the baby comes later because I think I'm there now. So I got past Bone Boy, got past Milakesh, Mikolash. Now, how how long did it take you to dream. figure out Mikolash? Um, the first part was pretty simple. The second part was kind of weird because there was no way to kind of like push him into that room. Um. It's just like if you come from a certain direction, I just guess he just goes there. So well, it, took, it took me longer than it should have. <laughs> I don't know about that. It's kind of a weird fight to do, and there's ways to cheese it. I, I it, It's an annoying fight, and in previous playthroughs for me, there's ways to get him locked into... So there's at one point in the second stage, he kind of keeps... Because he, he teleports, essentially. And if you do it in the right way, that he'll... 
he'll stay in the underneath you. He hops down. And if you stay up top, and you can plink him with poison daggers. Uh, when the poison procs, or actually when he takes any damage, he does this thing where he starts to get looped up because the, the AI is expecting you to be down there to hit him, but it sees you up there and it starts to do this weird sort of loop. And he teleports, goes back, teleports, goes back, teleports, goes back. He starts doing this and you just time it right and you just hit him and you just poison the death. And you, don't even have, you can skip the next phase even. You poison um, him? You, you can poison and, him. And he just will keep taking down. I don't know how poison works. Like the poison knives? Yeah, exactly. So, so they the way take damage forever? No. So what happens is and you you've seen it with your character when you get poisoned. It's the exact same thing where if you take enough hits, it fills up a bar. And if you hit the end of the bar, um which is affected by your gear and stats, uh it procs whatever status effect is kind of hitting you. And it's the exact same thing for for NPCs and monsters so that uh, some of them are immune or take forever. Some of them, it'll proc really quickly. So Mikolash is the same thing. You can hit him with these daggers, and between the pathetic damage from the dagger and the overtime uh, poison, so you just hit him, and the poison takes so long to kind of tick down before you have to reactivate it. Uh, I think you can if you've just got enough, and you, you probably haven't used him the entire game, and you can save him for this one particular spot, and you just whoop, whip him, whip him, whip him, poison procs, and he starts, you can just see the bar going tick, 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 tick of his life, and he just dies right there, and you can skip the kind of annoying um, little arena fight with him. That isn't too difficult, but the call from beyond tentacle attack can rock your world if you're not expecting it, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I heard that it was really difficult, but then, I don't know, he just kind of kept on trying to punch me. Yeah, so you got lucky. You, you really quick or something, but I think you you must have done the exact sort of system where or exact sort of um, shuffling of damage that you're dealing in the the area or the region that you're doing it. That he'll, he, he I can't believe he didn't. Did he did he try to use it once or he just tried to hit you the whole time? I think. Well, what happened upstairs or like, no, I guess it went downstairs, but whatever in the first room mm-hmm. was I found out I could go hit four times step to the side he'd do his thing i didn't even need to dodge because it's so slow mm-hmm. and then just do it four times and then step to the side so i just did the same thing in the next room yeah so mikolash is down it's it's a weird fight i i think the arena is just cooler the music's fantastic i like that he's kind of talking the entire time and he's got the great art design to his character of the the strange sort of helmet he's got on that's uh, kind of the um the what's it the something cage, Farian cage that people will put cell phones in or the, the paranoiacs will build around themselves so that signals can't get through because it's uh, the type of design on it to <laughs> it affects electromagnetic <laughs> um, uh, inputs, outputs. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what... Uh, the, I, think, I think it's something about like while you're wearing this cage, you know, you can kind of tune in to... Mm-hmm. Some higher powers. The Pythnumerians. Oh, uh, yes. The Numerians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're progressing nicely. So you so finished I, him. Yeah, and I made my way through, met a nice lady at the top of a tower that's like in a white dress with some blood. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at the wet nurse. So you basically you're at the end of the game, the second last fight, depending on what you've done so far, oh, yeah. and some other stuff. 
Like, did you? I'm. Do you have? Did you go to Canehurst uh, yet? Canehurst. What's this? So when you when you dealt with Yasafka, the the imposter, and you kill her, you get an umbilical cord, and on a table nearby too is the Canehurst summons. And oh, if you yeah. go if you go back to the kind of ravine before the witches of Hemwick, uh, next time you show up, you'll get a ni- neat little cinematic, and that'll sh- it'll be pretty obvious what you need to do next if you want to do it. It's all optional, but you know why would you skip it? It's there for you to enjoy. Yeah, well, I'm feeling the same thing about the lightning dog. It's like, well, huh, it's it's just entertainment for me to enjoy. If I skip it, uh, I'm missing out. Yeah, it's you should do it just to say that you did it. I guess it, it, the dog's still giving you trouble, eh? No, I just haven't been back there. Okay, then you're fine. You by now you're probably over leveled. You'll just uh, <laughs> you'll have zero issue with him, which is Two hits, satisfying yeah. and also yeah. The uh, there is a boss after him that can be super annoying that I find I usually summon for that because she's just got insane hitboxes. It's one of those classic FromSoft monsters that are gigantic and it's tough to really tell what's going on. So you just kind of hope for the best. How surprised were you before the Mikolash thing when the cathedral was kind of lighting up and you just found yourself taking frenzy attacks? Yeah, what's the deal with that? And like you just get arrows through you. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't know where this is coming from, but apparently it's hitting the monsters too. Like I could see them like dying, uh, uh, you know, right in front of me. Yeah, they're they're procking the frenzy. So you didn't go to the very top of the castle, did you? Well, the the castle that I'm at, that Mikolash is in. Mm-hmm. So if you take all the lifts up, you'll eventually get to the kind of the ramparts that overlook where you were. Oh, someone's down there shooting arrows or something. Sort of. You'll you'll come across the very creative enemies, but also arguably <laughs> the most frustrating ones in the game that are <laughs> that sit there. The the winter lanterns, very creepy design, very interesting. But uh, the, the the what they call they cause in you, like I said, is is frenzy, and it's an annoying attack. That there's always variations on frenzy throughout all these FromSoft games, and you can think of it as bleed in a lot of them, where you take enough of it, and all of a sudden it deals a, a hard percentage of your HP in just flat damage and uh it, it can be quite deadly if you don't know what to expect yeah friend this is just like when you hit the frenzy bar yeah exactly is that, that was what sedative is for is that exactly that calm you down yeah yeah, yeah. the issue I with the winter if I just went like rickon and zigzagged i was fine yeah if that's it works fine it's just the there's a weird it, it's when you go to the top the it's just a it's almost like a um I, you can't dodge it because I don't know if it's... I'm forget, I might be messing up and it's not the Winterlanders that are hitting you. It's a different kind of entity entirely. But those ones, if they see you, you're going to take... It's going to be bang, 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 bang. You're just going to... There's no dodging it. Just you have to get out of line of sight. Kind of like uh, a Bodoc or something in D&D. Oh, yeah. So, and they've got a nasty grab attack too, which are which is kind of uh, not fair. Well, that's good. You're almost done. You're almost done the base game. You may have to go and do a couple other things. I think to get to because you need the you need to fight all the base. You need to fight all the monsters, right? Mm-hmm. Excellent. All right. Well, let's move into the the meat and potatoes. Uh, we do have a, a shared board game to discuss, which is I feel like rarer than it should be. But uh, this was one of the the few times that I feel like we get, we sat down and were able to play something 
bigger together that wasn't um I don't know. I like Pax Premier can be a big game, but you know what I'm saying? It's not it's it's a it's a firmly, I'd say a heavy 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 medium game that, that can go long, it can be very quick too. Versus Clash of Cultures which is not as complicated, I think, as um Pax Premier at least on the surface, but is it, more of an event, I think. It it's more of a, you know, yeah. play let's you're not going to call people up and say do you want to do a quick game of Clash of Cultures on a Wednesday night. It's unless you guys I don't know. Maybe if you play enough Twilight Imperium, you can do something like similar. But I think just the you have to be out of your mind to do it personally. But anyway, so we did this. We got it down. Got it all set up. And between Joel, who is the most recent person to play it, the Monumental Edition, and Michael, who had watched some rules recently, and poor old Jack, who's played it five years ago, <laughs> uh, we sort of figured it out and muddled through. Uh, so Joel, why don't you give us the overview? Um, well, yeah, like you said, like Pax Premier, you can play two of them in a night, so that tells you, you know, you can never do that with Clash of Cultures. Clash of Cultures took us seven hours to play. Um, I, I think we've probably described it, but it's been years and years since we've played yeah. it, so I'm sure it was a long time ago. So I'll go over it again real quick. Um, it's a civilization game where. You start off, everybody starts in a corner of the map, and the map is unexplored and hidden by this sort of fog of war situation where uh, all of the tiles are face down with, you know, clouds on them. And when you explore to a t- tile with whatever you use, it flips face up. And then you basically have to d- kind of decide, following certain rules, how you're going to. Um, Uh, how you're going to orient it so that you can go explore that space. Um, and then you you basically just go out, and there's different land types, and each land type will give you a certain resource. You drop cities on those resources, and then for every city you have, you can expand your city by building in add-ons that benefit you in certain ways. And then the bigger your city... Uh, and you get a little bonus for being a happy city as well, you can produce more. So it's just kind of a expand and then uh, grow upwards, as they call it in Civ, um, and, then, uh, and then expand again and grow upwards again and try to exploit as much resources as possible uh, in order to you know spend those resources on upgrading your technologies and eventually, most likely, building armies to defend yourself and or conquer others. And it's got a pretty neat mechanic for uh, barbarians, as long as you notice the very faded mm-hmm. people on the map and don't kind of like mess up the starting exploration phase, mm-hmm. uh, which we did, unfortunately, missed mm-hmm. that. But I don't blame us because it was really, really hard to see until we were looking for it. Um, but basically, yeah, you go out and, and barbarians are a threat, but they're also a really good opportunity because it's a city that you can build without having to build and then spend a settler in order to get out there. And you also get a, a reward in, in the form of essentially wild resources when you, when you kill them, don't you? Every barbarian you slay. Gold. Yeah. Which is a wild card, yeah. Yeah, and just uh, just to quickly interrupt, if you if you haven't seen what it looks like, what Joel's describing is it it's tiles like uh, TI except 
there are just four hexes that are stacked together and i believe i don't know if they all are are going to have the same distribution there might be i think there's there's different ones like some might not have any water um and some may have two mountains i could be wrong but or they could all be the same just split up differently but you're essentially you're creating a hex board very similar to any sort of uh you know, ex- civilization game because that's what this is. It's a civilization 4x game, and it's obviously, you know, wearing its its lineage or its inspiration proudly on its sleeve. Because if you've played any of the Civ games before, specifically the Civilization computer games, the Sid Meier ones, then you will feel you'll you'll feel a sense of nostalgia when you when you look at it, especially with how it handles upgrades and how you do all that stuff. But sorry, Joel, please go on. No, it's okay. Um, and at least for me, and this is just the way I play most real-time strategy games, the game is kind of a uh, how far can you push your expansion of production before you pivot into the sort of essential militarization or, uh, you know, push to do like uh, victory point. You know, uh, you think about another Euros where you've got like a sort of situation where it's like, well, I want to get my engine going so that I can produce a lot of stuff in order to, you know, establish myself. But then also in the back of your head, you know that the game will end eventually and that the only thing that really matters is victory points. And so, uh, and then also obviously there's the uh, looming threat of other players and the barbarians so you kind of got i mean everyone makes their own decisions but at least for me i try to just push myself as far as i possibly can get away with the growth of my um production facilities and i and, you know, i do the same thing in root you know like if i'm the cats i'm gonna just like buy as many lumber mills as i can just lumber mill lumber lumber mill ignore all of the military let people push push me around whatever and then hope that that massive economy just explodes into uh into doing basically whatever i want and so that's that's the way i like to play civ games that's uh uh, Clash of Cultures really lends itself to that. You can definitely just, um, <laughs> as long as your opponents let you get away with it, um, you can you can end up producing four, maybe five. I think Jack, maybe you got up to five. Uh, you had one city with four buildings. Is that right? I can't recall. I don't think I ever hit four. But uh... yeah, I think that's kind of peak. Like if if you've got two buildings with to expand or if you've got two i don't know what you'd call them cities or settlements with two expansions and they're both happy and they're each producing um four goods per round you're in pretty good shape and if you can get beyond that that's great and i think if you have that as sort of like a backbone to then gain the resources you need on one turn and then spend them on the next you're gonna have a pretty time yeah, it's it, it like any good, or at least any game that pretends to be a civilization game. There's always this balance between, you know, are you going to develop your your civilization in a? Are you going to push for production? Are you going to push for um, non-violent sort of solutions in the sense of? Are you really going on the economic side? Are you really going in the diplomatic side? Are you really pushing the science? 
um, and technology stuff. And, uh, and inevitably, it seems like in this game, and again, I've only played it twice, so it's tough to say. And I don't even remember the first time if it turned into this as well. But it, it feels like, at least in my clumsy play and my observation, that it, it maybe, and you, you know, I, I'm not going to talk out of turn too much. I'd love to hear what somebody who's played the game 300 times would say. But it mm-hmm. seems like it could be something where inevitably military is going to become an issue and you have to you know, you have to defend yourself or you have to make yourself look so unappealing that somebody's not going to mess with you. But it definitely feels like um, the the military stuff is so inexpensive, generally speaking. At the beginning of the game, it's quite pricey. But by, I'd say, mid-late game, it, it feels like you're just... you got to spend those resources some way. And uh, unless you've been really producing tons of things to make, just, like, hit these wonders and just build, 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 build like crazy... You're going to have to invest in military units that aren't too expensive and they're good for defending against people who've done the same thing or maybe beating up on somebody who hasn't done it enough and taking their stuff because you take their things, you take it over, and all of a sudden you've, let's say you take over one of their cities that has three things in it, that's three VPs out of their pocket and three into yours. So there's a very, very big incentive to just take their stuff. And it's you can do it non-militarily too. You can culturally influence them. But yeah, it feels like it's kind of cool in its own right, and it was used a lot more in the, in the last game I played. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I forgot about it about halfway through the game too. I did it once to barbarians with a card, and I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, but after that, I just stopped caring. And part of it was that Mike and I had a good thing going till the middle of the game when I invaded him anyway. So it's mm. you know, it, I guess you could have just culturally influenced just. Which is neat. It's kind of you still keep this stuff. You still use it. It's just you're not getting the VPs for it anymore. So it's you go, oh man, that's kind of sucks. But on the other hand, if you don't mind trading the VP and you still get all the resources out of it and all that, it's not the worst. Stops of war, stops a fight. So anyway, um, so that's kind of the broad overview of the game. There's dice chucking. Uh, fights are not ever uh, a lock. You can march in with the biggest army in the world, which is <clears throat> four units and uh, steamroll somebody or it never happened to us in this game because just statistically it's uh, either going to be a toss-up or you have the advantage uh, or you can march in and just get demolished by one guy who's just hitting those hits and you just roll poorly and it's just not clicking so it didn't happen to us which is is nice to see I uh, except for thought, i think one yeah, fight i honestly thought my game was over when um when i had spent i think like four resources to build two ships to try to fight off pirates Um, yeah the pirate ship and then i just got absolutely obliterated uh and had nothing to show for it i thought well that's it i can't i can't my water space i've wasted an entire three actions which is one turn and uh and I'll just slowly sit here and die. But it turned I got lucky on the next round. I still lost the ship, but I managed to open up that water. Because yeah. gold is just so valuable. I mean, when you have a wild resource and you're limited by resources, it allows you to do things that you normally couldn't, right? All of a sudden, oh, I only have one access, access to one rock. Well, I guess I'll just use gold for rocks and anything like that. Yeah. It's uh, and it's got this way of at least it handles the resources kind of elegantly as opposed to some other games that would just be handing you a bunch of cubes or something and you're sitting there organizing them for half the game. That it has a track that you 
you abstract your resources down to, so it goes from 1 to 10, I think, and you just slide a little counter up and down, depending on how you use them, which is a nice way to handle it, even if the, um, I guess if your board can look kind of cluttered, if everything just kind of gets to one spot, because you've got two other resources that are a little more abstract, which are culture and uh, mood, and those go up. Uh, your total amount of mood and culture is dependent on your technologies, and that affects how much total stuff you can store as well. You can store mood. So I don't know if you want to, I don't know how you abstract uh, <laughs> the two, but whatever, it's fine. And uh, use culture for uh, two main purposes. The biggest one of which is building wonders of the world, which you think is like they're very expensive. It takes 11 flat resources and then five culture to, and then spending a turn to activate a city, I think, to uh, build it there, which is pretty cool. Um, and they all provide like the, some nice VPs, five VPs, and also some uh, some either immediate or secondary bonuses or a combination of the two, and those are kind of cool. And uh, otherwise, you use it just for, like I was saying before, to kind of zap somebody else's civilization that's X places away and kind of you, you get them to play rock and roll and listen to, uh, or and wear jeans. And they're like, yeah, this is pretty sweet. We all like doing this in one of these places. So. And it's, which is, I think that the first time I ever saw a game that let you do that was, I think it was one of the Galactic Civilizations. I think it did it before with the Civ games started to do it, but I could be wrong. I think it was in first year university when I was watching a friend playing it in the dorm room and I was going, oh, this is cool. You're just playing a peaceful game of, uh, <laughs> you're just outputting so much culture that nations are just being absorbed into you <laughs> without a single shopping fire. And that, that's, I found that entertaining and satisfying. Feels good, man. Yeah. I was actually talking to someone today about how in Civ Five there's like five different victory conditions. You know, you can end up building a rocket ship, or you can uh, just have alpha cultural Centauri. cultural influence over like four four of the five other nations or something. Or obviously, yeah. you can do like your total dominance where you kill everybody. I think you can even do something involving trade where you have much money that everyone was just like, you know what, you should rule us. Yeah, you, know, you uh, figured it all out. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's just nice to have options. I think that is a now. Unfortunately, in this one, there is you're not going to just win the game by being the trading powerhouse or the cultural hegemon directly. At least, it's still going to come down to either players eliminated or you you run down the clock. And uh, I think at this point, we can just get into people's thoughts on it. People, i.e., Joel and myself. And uh, so I'll ask Joel because. To set the table here, um, without putting too many words into Joel's mouth, and I'll let him explain it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna poison the well right away, and say that you your the first time you played was was at Josh's place, and I think you hated it, and you went out and you you I think I saw you shoot a, a homeless man. I couldn't believe it. You were that upset, and I was like, where did Joel get the gun, and why is there a homeless man in this area? Either way, it was it was wild to see, and then nobody talked about the game, or at least played it for years and years and years, and then. I think it was a last cottage con, or maybe you were just at uh, hanging out, uh, stalking Hassan, and you guys played the monumental edition of it. And I think you walked away with a much more, um, how about we say this, less less negative impression of the game. And then we have this one. So um, the well has been sufficiently uh, filled with corpses at this point, and I'll let Joel just <laughs> go on. Yeah, I mean. Shooting at a homeless man is pretty standard for me. Pretty standard. Whether whether I have a, like a good game or not, you know, just kind of it's a good way to unwind. 
<laughs> get, out, get out your pent up energy and your ammunition too, because sometimes it yeah, sure. expires, you know, and so you need to use it up. <laughs> Joel's a, a huge firearm enthusiast. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> yeah. 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 My collection is, I think the, I don't know how true it was, but Cannibal Corpse, you know, the thing where he's like, he has two songs on his album. One is like, there's bought, there's skulls in my basement, and the other is like, I have 80 guns or something like that. Yeah. And then, like, they raid his home and they're shocked that there's like skulls in his basement. He has guns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> so the skulls he literally were wrote these songs. For, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's, there was a famous, uh, I think he's dead now. Um, the era of outlaw country. There was a guy called Johnny Outlaw, and uh, <laughs> he had this. I think I don't know if it was a song or it was an album called "I'm Drunk and Crazy and I'll Shoot You." And uh, he got in some trouble with the law, and he was saying, <laughs> "No, no, you're wrong." And they kind of pull out his LP and says, "Is this the name of your album?" <laughs> and the guy went, uh, <laughs> uh, "Oh, it was a joke, officer." Anyway. Yeah. It's, this is art. This is my art. Yeah. Well, you know, it should hold up, but oh well. Yeah. Well, what can I say? Um, when I played it with Hassan, I think they they played it in a very different way, and it kind of opened my eyes to like the potential of the game, the the gamesmanship of it, the sort of. Uh, I, I trying to manipulate other people, basically. Like I, I had explained to you, that Hassan was hitting people up for all of these uh, events. Whereas, where in our game, it was just kind of like an instant, like, "All right, this is happening, and we'll put the barbarian over here. We'll put the pirate over here." Yeah, uh, which is fine. But like, I kind of liked the way that Hassan did, it, except that I felt like everyone else was being kind of complacent. But you know, teach their own. Um. But uh, I think, honestly, I don't know. I don't know what you thought, and I'd like to get your your thoughts on this. But I feel like the expansion, mm-hmm. even though it doesn't really change the game all that much, really kind of opens it up because I can just imagine going back to Clash of Cultures, and you can literally just make infantry. Yeah. Only unit. Obviously, you can build boats, but it, it just makes it kind of boring. And then also just the combat would be so zero sum where it's just like, well, I have three guys, you have three guys, we roll three dice, let's see how many die. Whereas the the cavalry and the elephants that uh, get included in the expansion also really diversify your strategy as far as uh, military composition. And allows you for for a lot more interesting uh, choice, and then and then on top of that, I think the fact that we are all asymmetrical and have these uh, unique goals, unique strengths and weaknesses, and everything like that made us made us much more interesting. You're, I don't think that anyone could argue against that. And like you're saying, the the base game combat is. I don't know if zero sum is the right word, but more just there's no there's no real thinking about it insofar as that you, you, like army composition is a second thought because you just stack your four soldiers. You try to have more than the next guy. That's it. So if he's got three, you've got four. If he is two, you have three. Maybe a four. I don't know. It depends on how greedy you want to be. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
but yeah, that's so we forgot to point out that we are playing with um, the expansion, which is I think titled Civilizations. And what it appropriately does is rather than the base game giving everyone just this amorphic sense of you're just a, a, a gray goo people that just forms into your own civilization naturally, which works for Civ and like I'm the, the Tresham Civ because um, because there's a there's a more of a subtle influencing of that with the with the civilizations with regard to your placement that the placements all feel special that rome is in a neat place uh, uh egypt is in a neat place um minoa crete is in a unique place so your your civs naturally form around those sort of natural barriers if that makes sense versus this one the weakness is that in the base game and even in the expansion because expansion is not changing the um starting locations that i'm aware of it's if everyone didn't have these leaders that represent uh, you know famous historical civilizations th everyone basically is the exact same and you build up from there but there's no incentive to go specifically to specialize in something until the map perhaps develops in a certain way or you react to your opponents so in this sense it is kind of railroading a little bit because if you look at the expansion it gives you Everyone starts with that special sieve, but then you take this tile that gives you unique civilization advances uh, that are derived from there, and those are linked intrinsically to your basic tech tree. So for me, for example, um, I forget what triggered this. I think it was engineering. If I get the engineering tech upgrade, I immediately get to put another cube in my little uh, satisfying tableau type thing that gives me uh, the ability uh, canals which let me get food easier than everyone else, or at least I'm aware of everyone else. And it was just meant to be, oh, the Babylonians were really good at farming or using their technological expertise to, you know, get water, irrigate their, uh, you know, their, their land better. So just little things like that that push you in certain directions. And the leaders all, and there are leaders on the board too that you can take into battle or leave in certain cities and they do certain things and it's all about just providing i guess a re more replayability than the base game which would be aside from the randomization of the map and the the events and action cards the the base the game itself if you stared at it would be would play almost identically there might be some odd kind of shocking beats here and there but this one kind of really mixes things up again i've only got two plays maybe it's not mixing things up that much but compared to the one play from before i would absolutely say like it, and that's that was the one reason I, I'm talking a lot here. The one reason that I wasn't going to play Clash of Cultures until uh, Hassan actually gave me his expansion, because he got the Monumental Edition, which is the mm -hmm. they kickstarted it again. And what they did was they tweaked some rules, they changed some art, and um, and they embedded this expansion into the game as well as a third mini expansion. Uh, that I'm not quite sure what it does, but I don't think it's as it's not as significant. It'd be for the you know the diehards that are sitting there going, I need more, I need more Clash of Culture variation in my life, and they say, oh, well, we've got you, sir. And I, I imagine it fixed the uh, the questionable print quality of uh, which is an infamously kind of poorly designed game with regard to its component pieces, with multiplayer men and one player missing ship bottoms completely. But anyway. That's that's a broad overview. Joel, please keep talking. I know I just rambled on there. I interrupted you. <laughs> no worries. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know why, but uh, yeah, I mean, basically, we everything what you just said is 
is bang on. Just, the expansion makes it interesting. The original game, I know we were critical about the pieces. There's still a lot of things that frustrate me in the game. Uh, you know, it's it's it. I th- I feel like there's still you don't have to hold back, Joel. Go to town. Locations and that sort of thing, like uh, in the tech tree. The tech tree is fine, but there's it's it's not that there's too many options, but it's just that the options are are all slow, right? Like it, it's one action per tech. There's so many good techs out there, and then you've got I want to say was it four, was it four by four by ten maybe, and then another section, so maybe like eighty techs. Maybe it's less. Maybe it's maybe it's only uh, either way. There's a bunch. There's a few. And on your turn, right? You get three three actions per turn and three turns per. And I think Michael said something funny where he's like, "Yeah, you could actually just decide what to do before the game even starts, because you know how many turns, how many actions you're going to get in the entire game." But my point being. Um, you can either uh, spend your resources and increase your technology, and you know do that in a cycle. I get resources, spend them for tech. Get resources, spend them for tech. Get resources, spend them for tech. Or you can do maybe two actions that help you on the map, and then one for tech. Or you can do anyway. You can't ever, you know. And I suppose every nation thematically makes sense. Every nation needs to specialize. You, can, you can't learn everything. But um, it just feels like the game tried to do a little bit too much. And that if it had kind of dumbed it down a little bit more, uh, it, it would have been a bit clearer as to, to where you were going as far as uh, technology goes. Um, all all of the tech trees, I guess, make sense in some sense, but some of the, some of them, you know, you've got like okay, you've got four or five different government types, you've got uh, a whole section for the arts, you've got a section for um, science, which doesn't actually do anything in its own right, but makes it easier to gain more basic techs. That makes um, it you spend one and you get uh, two for free after that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, discount. Um, but again, it's like, well, you spend that one, you get half a victory point for doing it, and then you get two without paying the cost, which is great, but still, you know, that clock is ticking, you only have so many, and I just feel like the map is big, there's a lot to explore, the the map itself, as far as benefits to explore, is pretty vanilla, it's like, well, you're either going to get more wood, more stone, or more food. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so there's not really much incentive to break out and, and, and get out there. Um, I think you mentioned at some point like a some sort of something in the middle, like Twilight Imperium does, where it's like you know whoever gets to the middle first gets a benefit. And I think Scythe kind of does that in the same in the same the factory. That's yeah. with the factory, and the, and the factory has this benefit in the middle. Uh, the the only thing that Clash of Cultures has is if you border somebody, if you have a settler or a ship within two of someone, you can get trade routes, and that'll get you, I think, one food or something, maybe a gold. 
at the beginning of each turn. It's good. It's quite good. Quite good, but you have to get that specific tech, and then you have to, you know, make sure that your settler is nearby and it doesn't die. But you know, if you're able to do it, uh, that's one incentive to get yourself out there. And then I think that combat is terrible. Uh, I think that any time where you're just rolling dice and adding numbers, uh, you're really incorporating like a, a lot of risk for just like chaos uh, as far as results go. And, and, you know, sometimes that's really fun and exciting, but sometimes it's like, well, in a civilization game, all of those units you've produced and everything that you've done to get towards that combat has been really methodical and strategic and like like we've said you can break down all your moves into like okay i'm gonna get these resources on this turn i'm gonna get this tech on this turn i'm gonna move this 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 and then you reach something that you just roll dice and and you live or die by that and i think that uh it could be done better there's a lot of better uh combat functions out there i i'm of two minds about the combat because you either go full deterministic with civ and there's no, you know it's going to happen. You put units here, I know what you have, you know what I have, and it's resolved. So turn order is God here. Or you have to have some sort of, um, or you have to create some chance here. And I, and I didn't hate it as much as you did, because I think that does do a good system of, so the way combat works is it's not just pure who has higher number. It, it handles hits like uh, Twilight Struggle, or not Twilight Struggle, Twilight Imperium, or... Um, attack, which I don't think you've played. Uh, did you ever play attack? Attack? Yeah. Oh, like T-A-K. No, no. Attack. I attack you. Oh, no. Okay, no. It's, it, it's, those games are more based on unit composition, but they still handle things where it's, you're chucking dice and you're hitting on certain numbers versus this one where you're chucking dice, but you're adding them together purely. Like, so Joel's saying, so if you have a fight, if you divide by five down, that's what you, you land hits. And your opponents uh, do the same thing. So you're essentially uh, punching each other at the face at the same time. And whether I knock you out or you knock me out first, that's what happens. And I don't mind it as much because it's still, it still it does a good way of, of not just when you roll, let's say, um, I rolled a five, you rolled a six. I'm disappointed, but at least that was a good roll. If I roll a one, you roll a two, and you still win, I feel like, oh, man, we both stink. Why are you winning somehow? Versus this one where at least like you can be slugging out together, and it feels a little more mutually destructive. And I guess maybe that's where you get into the zero-sum stuff you were mentioning before. Um, but ultimately, I just find that I found the comment more engaging that it's not just a pure higher number goes. It's building the numbers up and then dividing it down. So theoretically, we could all just roll ones and we just look at each other and, you know, we'd probably just roll again because that's just like a pass. But yeah, there's a bit... Mad. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah. And it's... I think when you break the numbers down statistically, it really does lend itself to attacking with more people just because the, you know, those numbers add up versus one guy rolling one die, that's not necessarily going to add up. Maybe he'll get, on a 5 and a 6, he lands his hit, but anything below, he's screwed. Um, I, I don't know. It, you need the, you can't have a combat-less game of Civ, at least in this form. Um, yeah. So you got to do something. And maybe we're just kind of jaded. I Again, I didn't hate it as much as you or dislike it as much as you, but it's 
if I wanted a diceless kind of combat situation, I'd probably just default to playing uh, the Tresham sieves in that sense, and it, it just kind of foregoes all of that. But that's why Clash of Cultures is a Meritrash Euro uh, hybrids there, so because you know chuck and dice is wild and exciting, and you can end up snake eyes every time, or you can just demolish somebody completely, and they don't through no fault of their own. So I don't know. I, I think that again, going all the way back to the beginning, it, and it kind of feels like that with Twilight Imperium, perhaps. And it's, it's funny you mentioned Scythe, and I'll bring that up for just quickly in, in a second. That the the combat <clears throat> should be less about death balls and i think that's the issue with this is that it's too easy to make your unit cap of four per city um and just kind of sit there and resolve things kind of plainly in the sense of oh, i attacked your four with my four oh i have a fortress i have this i have that okay whatever um but i think the the units should be more expensive and or have upkeep and i think that's something that would fix the combat for me to stop you from just pointlessly having tons of soldiers out and they don't do anything and i i can't remember are is there upkeep in ti4 did they add that nope there's no upkeep in that too and that's something we've always been critical of yeah but i guess the the intrinsic negative to it is that um when you do that you're sinking resources into units that could been spent doing something that's directly productive for yourself versus either potentially starting winning fights or um, or just defensive purposes. Does that make sense? Am I am I making that point? That um, so again, I didn't I dislike the that, combat like, as well. Uh, you know, uh, different units could have different strengths, or uh, they they did incorporate the leaders, which often give you like plus. Strength thing, and obviously you get the oh, it's a fortress which uh, kind of defensive helps, helps your defense in the first round. So there are some small ways, and obviously you've got your action cards to manipulate. The action cards really, um, as far as their combat functions, play a lot. Like you can use them in War of the Ring. War of the Ring has sort of like a top thing which is like play this as an action you know do this thing that's a peaceful one or out of combat the, yeah yeah and then the bottom is like if in combat you can use this card to do this and, and so that's in there so if you see somebody with a lot of action cards maybe you think twice before yeah starting fight with them but uh, it was um uh, <laughs> well, here, here, let's just get to the, the let's just get to the the meat of this. Here is that did you did you have fun? Because again, the the other thing I wanted to point out is the game did take uh, close to seven seven eight hours, way too long. Part of that was a lot of it was spent fiddling around at the beginning to to sort that out. But even if we shaved two hours off that, uh, it, that's been extremely generous, uh, and we could drop that to a five hour game. I would still say that was too long. I think, generally speaking, the game is just too long. You look at, Michael broke it down immediately and said you have 54 actions in this game. That's not including free ones that you can take that are usually not as powerful, but useful for conversions or taking resources via cartography or whatever. But my whole thing is the game felt too loose 
in that I, originally I thought, oh, there's not enough time to do everything. And then I kind of looked around and said, I have a lot of time to do a lot of stuff. I, I don't know. I, I like the feeling of being choked and not having a lot of time. Don't cut that out. Don't take that out of context. To <laughs> sit in the game and have to feel like I want to do eight different things, but I have time for one. And in this, it's like, oh, I have three actions a turn. Uh, and I've got <laughs> like three rounds to accomplish this for the like before the game doesn't even end it's just like one little section and the game hands you a free tech at the end of every one of those too and i thought that's too generous it's if you're getting just free stuff every time and it doesn't feel like the clock's really ticking on you i, I feel like it just feels it, it's too loose but maybe that's all part of it maybe it should be if you know what you're doing it's played faster and it there is the strangling that's going on but what did you think did you think it was uh, do you think the time on it is acceptable the time was fine because I think the time was. When you think about the amount of moves each person makes, it's actually not that much. But I think the problem was is that we were all new to it, and I mean I wasn't as new to it, but I still wasn't really sure what I was gonna do, and so all of our turns were a lot of analysis paralysis and trying to figure out uh, you know what you can do and that kind of thing and figure out the rules for it. I think that if you sat down with three people that had played uh, Clash of Cultures over five times, I think that on their turns they would have already known what they wanted to do and just be like, these are my moves. Kind of like, you know, when when we would play something like Carcassonne or DC or something where you know, Already we've, pretty got, clear. we've got the moves maybe even 1830 or something because uh, maybe at a certain point you've kind of Taken the, uh, I'll just say that the what spent the thinking was what spent most of our time. I think that if we were to take our actions, you know, having known what we wanted to do, probably the game would have got a lot shorter. With that said, is the game very long? Yes, does it need to be probably not, but uh, I, I don't I don't know what you would change. In order to do that, I think I think I it's probably okay. just cut, the, cut it down by a round or two. That's that's yeah, that's true. And there is a when I was reading the rule book, there's a variant that says just do four rounds. Now, is that considered the fast game, or is that just something yeah. they advise? Yeah, yeah, I'd be I'd be interested in trying that. It doesn't seem like you'd really be kicking the legs out from underneath you. And I I like the rush. I like more of a scramble. That you shouldn't be sitting there feeling like you're at the peak of your civilization for a few rounds, kind of going oh well. Guess I'll build yeah. a second wonder. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that was kind of funny. You managed to get two wonders out. And that's the thing. Like, maybe the game is too long if somebody could get two wonders. Because I think that the real, like, what you're ramping up to is can I get to a wonder before this game ends? Because then, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll at least be in contention for the win, I think. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing of what happens if someone attacks your wonder. Because we never really got to that. But can yeah, well. Weird? It absolutely can. It's it's just like anything else because it's attached to the city. So you lose the city, you lose the wonder. But it's I don't know. It it I, they're just it's it's a weird. It, that's why it's a meritrash because it's it feels like this giant lumbering unwieldy beast that can be random, and it, it's it's it forsakes determinism for um kind of intrinsic sort of narrative development of. Oh, remember when Joel attacked those pirate ships and he lost both? Uh, he lost his fight. Oh, that was wild! I couldn't believe it. It was it was his. <laughs> and you go, oh yeah. And then in Civ, it'd be like, you remember when Joel attacked those ships? Yeah, he knew he was gonna win. 
what are you talking about? I forgot about all that until like yeah. 20 rounds ago. The chips removed one, and then he removed one, and then the chips removed one. And there was no surprise. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So and that's the difference between the, the Ameritrash and the cut and dry Euro. And the, like I was thinking about this too, that <clears throat> one of my criticisms of Euros is like, do they respect my time? And I have to say, even though this one was very, very long, I still felt involved like I, I couldn't realize it lasted that long i found myself oddly engaged the entire time and whether it was just the good company or the fact we hadn't played the game in a while or there was just this like there's that dopamine rush of getting stuff and making things and developing your cities and and i have to say the the dice chucking is thrilling to kind of watch from either yourself or when other people are doing it so i can't complain too much about that but it is ultimately does it respect my time it respected i'd say 60 percent of my time overall because it was just too much too long and then i don't know about you joel but you have to when you size up a game of this length you have to you start comparing against other games of similar lengths and you start thinking either would i have rather played a game of megasiv Ooh, probably or would i prefer to play three other games potentially that were two hours long and get a bunch of different stuff that i might like more in a more concentrated doses like what what would you say yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if we had just given it one more hour, we could have gotten a game of Civin, and that would have been, you know, legendary because that game is the best. And uh, with four players, we put a, we could have played Civ faster, <laughs> like an hour a person, generally speaking, for Civ. That would have been it probably would have gone faster. Now that I think about it, hmm. that's hmm. saying something right there. Anyway, uh, final thoughts, Joel. I think Clash of Cultures has a lot of potential, um, but it's when it, when you put it all together, I'd rather play a lot of other things. So I think that you could probably take a lot of elements of it, tear it apart, and and use those elements in other games. Okay. My r- final thought on Clash of Cultures is, it's a type of game that probably similar to TI four. You, I won't. I would like to play it once a year, and. I think if I had to compare the two, I had more fun with Clash of Cultures than I did it the last couple of games of Twilight Imperium, uh, because maybe it's it's less complicated for me than those, but it's just as long and it's it's probably doing all the same stuff fundamentally under the hood, but maybe the the lack of complexity makes it slightly more palatable. But either way, it's it's not that I'm not this isn't a quality a qualitative statement, but it is an epic game in that you probably are going to. If you're scheduling it, you're scheduling it. You're not just casually hitting it to the table and calling it a day. That's my thought. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Uh, in the dying moments here of the the show, uh, I do have a little bit of D&D to talk about, actually. Mm-hmm. Because okay. I, had a, I, I spent a couple hours, I went over to uh, Dave's place, where we played some Storm King's Thunder a while ago, Joel. And Dave has been running the uh, starter game of D&D. And it is not the Lost Mines of Flander, or whatever it's called. Uh, this one is something about a dragon, a dragon attack. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I've seen it. They've changed it to uh, Dragon Heist or something. No, Dragon Heist is a module. But yeah, it's something about dragons. Um, and I hopped in. They were, uh, they were supposed to be level 3. I started at level two, 
and then they got to level four immediately, and I just kept myself at level three because I didn't. You know, I have this bizarre little system that I don't. Like, I don't DMB beyond. I'm not looking this up. So I just gave myself more health. That's all I did. Um, and I made a bard for this little situation, and I was having some fun. And we, I got to play a tiny bit of non-DM'd uh, D&D, and it was it was kind of refreshing getting to just sit there and role play in somebody else's world, and not have to say like wrap my head around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how it works and what the maps are doing and how the monsters are behaving too. Yeah, it's definitely uh, it's a lot easier <laughs> just to, like be along for the ride. Yeah, and I and the, what I, the reason I brought it up is that it, what's neat about this is that um, it really is sort of an all-in-one sort of kit that you it comes with all the little maps and it has these uh, borderline board game elements where you have these you you tear out cards that are the magic items and the quests. That you're handing out, so it's very video gamey and very sort of predetermined, railroaded. But um, I I think for an intro adventure, it, it takes a lot of the guesswork out. And if you were, I think if you were a kid or getting into it, I think there's nothing wrong with doing this, um, especially when if you you know between Saltmarsh and Strahd and Storm King Thunder, like I, I don't think, and you've done more of these than I have, Joel. I don't think there's any of these that I would say if you don't. There's no such thing as a, a, a DM beginner DM friendly of these. Like you have to spend time and effort and really think about. It. There's none of them I could say. Oh, just pick up the book. You'll be fine. It's 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 not like uh, you're you can just uh, invite your buddies over on a whim and decide to learn D and D. So it that's my quick dirty review of. The, the game I can't even remember. The D&D Dragon Attack game. Dragons of Stormwreck Isle. Is that what it is? You just look it up? Yeah, that's what comes in the starter pack these days. Okay, there it is. Um, and I... I, <laughs> I felt was... really bad for a guy the other day. He sent me a message saying, Hey Joel, uh, my kid and her friends really want to play D&D. Can you just like tell me how to how to run it and i was what like a, what oh, a question. sweet summer child <laughs> god bless you I, I sent him the dms you know the dms guide and the the basic uh, campaign the fan over campaign and i was like yeah. uh, i don't really know if this is the right way to do this but uh here here's the information you need and do you, joel do you know that bards <laughs> have access to shatter Oh yeah, 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 because they like make a loud noise. It, it's <laughs> it's absolutely absurd. Boom. There's zero reason I mean, for them to have like, that. Like, let's Jagger's got to be a bard, right? So I know that maybe that's all it is. It's just one giant Rolling Stone gag. Okay, we're <laughs> done. That's it. It's the end of the show. Thank you for tuning in. Android's Dungeon CFRU ninety three three FM. Check us out on Facebook at the Golf Board Game Group. Uh, check us out on Twitter eighty Radio CFRU or. Uh, yeah, and then email droiddungeonradio at gmail.com. You can listen to us on all your favorite podcasting websites because Anchor has been quite good. I think I've been doing a decent job. I have a three weeks uh, stretch going right yeah. now, and I will keep it We've up. Got our podcast going again. Yeah, it's reactivated. So that's that. Until next time, I'm Jack. I'm Joel. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>